Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. My name is Huai Chen Bui. I'm a writer for Slash Film, and today I'm joined by. I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the DC area. And I'm Mike Sullengill, a fanboy and social scientist in the DC area. So Anya could not join us today because she is off on a fun-filled weekend of weddings and other social engagements. But today we're going to be talking about a topic that she hasn't really uh, seen a lot of the films of. I haven't either, but I'll let you introduce it, Willoughby. So we are talking about Planet of the Apes, a franchise that's now nearly 50 years old and just released its newest movie, War for the Planet of the Apes, this weekend. We've all seen it. We won't spoil it, but we are going to go into a mini-review of it, and then we're also going to talk about the franchise as a whole, because Mike and I have seen most of the movies, all the movies? I have seen all the movies. It's been a while since I've seen some of the later sequels. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll probably get around to that. Yeah, I just got around to watching those movies. I've seen the the Tim Burton film, uh, I saw Rise on DVD, and then I saw Dawn in theaters, and now I just saw War for the Planet of the Apes this weekend. So I've not seen any of the Planet of the Apes movies except for the reboot ones. So that's uh, <laughs> that's Rise. Rise of the Planet of, A- of the Apes, Dawn, Dawn for the, of the Planet of the Apes, and War for the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yes. So first, in our episode today, we'll be talking about War for the Planet of the Apes, the most recent film directed by Matt Reeves and starring Andy Serkis in an Oscar-worthy role. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Like, for all three movies, but definitely for this one. Mm -hmm. He just goes above and beyond. Even, like, if you want to compare, like, a CGI characters in two distinct trilogies, I think he's surpassed Gollum now. Oh, 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 of course. Gollum Gollum was not one note. He was very complex. He obviously Mm -hmm. had two, two personalities, but... You could tell that he's just kind of crafted like a whole character of Caesar. Oh, like he, he God. like he's 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 a family man, he's a warrior, he's a revolutionary, he's, he succumbs to his darker animal instincts. Yeah, like he he reckons with his darker side in this movie so well and so fascinatingly mm-hmm. that it's Oscar it's more so than like any white guy who's playing a British historian (laughs) or historical figure that has won a best best actor. Caesar's arc through these three movies can rival some of the best characters in cinema, I think. What really struck me was the moment where it was late into the film. I won't get into specifics, but he's in this climactic battle the war for mm-hmm. the planet of the apes and it just i re, i re, rewatched uh, rise and dawn this week and i was like he went from like living with james franco and like like as like a regular like not regular suburban but, like, house chimp. suburban house chimp <laughs> who has advanced skills and intelligence and then he goes to warrior family leader in dawn and he's like protecting his own and then in war for the planet of the apes he's just embroiled in this like like the lone warrior tri- type, yeah. yeah. Like trying he becomes to... ape Moses, yeah. Yep. Like essentially, yeah. And he's both ape Clint Eastwood and ape Moses yeah. in this film. And like, and I, I like the duality and like the whole like just, but like that there was like a specific scene where he's like gonna blow up something, and I was like, damn, he went from being like living in a house in San Francisco to this, right? And I was like, what an arc. All right, so Mike. Can you tell me what you thought about War for the Planet of the Apes? Um, how much time do we have, actually? Uh, 15 minutes. <laughs> Let's keep it short. Just I, give me I'll a little bit. I'll keep it completely brief. Um, mm-hmm. I discussed that the last time I was on the podcast, but I completely loved it. It's an entertaining blockbuster full of spectacle, as always, 
but it's got complex storytelling, real drama. The storytelling is in the eyes. It almost feels like a silent film because most of the communication, which is a big theme of this film, oh, yeah. is just sign language or just facial expressions. And when Matt Reeves zooms in on characters' eyes, especially the apes, yes, it's great visual effects work, but it really conveys a lot of emotions without dialogue, um, just scenes between the orangutan Maurice and the girl Nova, um, the contest of wills between Caesar and the Colonel, played by Woody Harrelson, who loves chewing up his the scenery he and everything. But he doesn't go over the top. Hit. Like I mean, yeah. it's over the top, but it's obviously like it's in league with the rest of the. Movie. He's the type of character that I expect from like this kind of story. Yeah. I don't know. For me, he was a little bit over the top because we had such complex human characters in the last film. So it, it felt for me that the human characters in this one was a little bit one note comparatively. Anyways. I would say yes, and this is obviously this is one of the this is the first film in this trilogy where there's really not like a group of of like humans like right. aiding Caesar. Mm-hmm. Like in the first movie, there was James Franco and uh, Frida Pinto. Yeah, yeah. And um, the second film was Jason Clark. Jason Clark and, and Carrie Russell herself. Carrie <laughs> <laughs> Russell along along uh, uh, the guy from Fringe, uh, Kirk Acevedo. Oh, yeah, yeah, He was the one who was the, yeah, um, he was the center. Of, yeah. Oh, I'm the asshole guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. And then, but this movie, really, the only, really two fleshed out humans are... Nova. Nova and the Colonel. Oh, um, that was kind of a spoiler. Because she wasn't named until the end. Oh. Well, okay, they yeah. showed that in a trailer. Okay, okay. The TV spots have been showing a lot, so... All right, so, all right. That's not necessarily a spoiler. And plus, they already announced in a press release that her name was Nova. Okay. That's true. It was. It was definitely like it wasn't. A, it wasn't a secret. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. And so yeah. So those. Um. Those are the only two real human characters that have been like established in this movie. It's mainly about the apes, which I think is great. And honestly, that's why I definitely feel like it surpasses Dawn because I always thought that the human characters, like they weren't bad, but they were definitely not as interesting. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, that's. I guess one of the great things about genre is that you could, whoa, it's like a storytelling cliche. We've seen it before. Yeah, but you've never seen it done before in terms of apes and that gradual process of humanization. That's a novelty. That's powerful. And it's a timeless and enduring uh, theme that resonates with an audience. Yes. All right. Willoughby, what were your thoughts on War for the Planet of the Apes? Very similar to Mike's. I <laughs> liked the movie a lot. I think it's one of the best movies of the year. Um, I think the visual effects surpass Dawn even more so. I think if you can see the progression of how Caesar looks throughout these three movies, and he definitely looks the most real mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, like, we, we talked about Beauty and the Beast. We talked about how, like, like, still computer generated the beast looked mm-hmm. like he looked kind of dead in the eyes that uncanny yes. valley feel yeah but that you got in like the first uh rise of the planet of the apes movie we don't get that here it's we, a... we get we like we yeah. look you look at caesar and you look like he can be standing right there and i you know we we can talk we can talk ages about computer graphics and what it means for acting but i mm-hmm. think that the the visual effects of of, of a computer generated character fully in, in like in the scene is, are there like we can't say oh we're not there yet we are there mm-hmm. so like and Weta Digital is doing wonders for that just fantastic work and it's like they're doing this mocap performances you know on location and so all these close up shots the camera has to I mean it's obviously zooming up on him in mocap suit but the animators like they're doing all their animations on par with the facial reactions the looks that Andy 
um, Karen Carnival, who does Maurice, Terry Rotary, who does Rock and all the other apes, like, they're still pattering off all those emotions and behaviors off of the actual mocap performers. Right, because if you look at, if you've ever seen a mocap suit, mm-hmm. they have a little camera that comes around that's, like, right here in their face. And, and then it, it captures, like, captures the dots that, like, are all around their face. Every single motion that's captured by a dot. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure what they did for, like, Beauty and the Beast or other movies. I'm sure they did it. But for some reason, Weta is just supreme. I have never, I have not seen... The level of texture just I, is... I think it's also aided by Andy Serkis, because oh, he yeah. has definitely been like on the forefront of this motion capture technology and acting, so I think he definitely knows the technology inside and out, and yeah. has helped improve that with his performances, and um, with each Apes movie, because he's also been at the center of each Apes movie as right. well. He's actually... Um... He's done second unit directing work mm-hmm. on the Hobbit series, but he's making his directorial debut on a feature film. I think it's that other live action Jungle Book that I, has been. Oh, he's directing. Yeah. yeah, he's directing. I it. didn't realize that. Oh. Yeah. I didn't so, know that so, but back to the move. My little, my thoughts yes. on the on the movie. <laughs> um, I thought it, the story was. I mean, you can we can talk about how it pulls from like classic, like classic movies like mm-hmm. John Ford westerns mm-hmm. and other like like World War Two movies. Um, like The Great Escape, but I think it, you know, like Mike said earlier, we've seen it done before, but never, never like this. Mm-hmm. Like this is about like apes and their survival and like the story. Like it's so there's so much passion and emotion that in this movie, like in all all three movies, but particularly in this movie, that I just was like engrossed in the story, like from the, from the first moment and like to the very end, like the whole like the whole journey, like there is a complete. I'm I'm. I don't know if it's sacrilegious to say, but um, it's it's it it harkens back to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, definitely. Where where like Dawn is kind of like two towers, and then this one is very much Return of the King. Like it is an ending to the story from of all of this three movies, but it also lingers. You can you can you can do a fourth movie. They're gonna do a fourth movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you can you can I I love how they wrap things up. It was so like melodramatic. Like these movies are melodramas. Mm. Like we've talked about melodramas before. The, the melodramas are about family. They're about duty and honor, and the decisions you have to make to to to, to keep those uh, in a balance. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's duty versus family, and this movie is combines everything because Caesar's herd, I guess, is his family. Like his. Mm. His people are his family, right? Um, and even even though he has a wife and he has sons, and um, everyone like Maurice and Rocket and Luca, like all the, all the characters, all the apes are his family. Mm-hmm. You know, we like to say apes together strong, and that's true. And it's right. I'll, I'll, there's a, there's great moments. There's so many great little moments in this movie that mm-hmm. I wish I can go into, but I won't because spoilers. Yeah, have time. I will say that this is. Um, just an incredible job of how connected all three films are because I know we'll probably do a deep dive in the next section, but that sense of consequence stemming from the very first film and how it affects Caesar on his personal journey and then the events of the second film and how the events of the second film literally haunt him mm-hmm. in the third film. Oh, yeah. And I mentioned earlier about how he's grappling with his darker instincts and it really ties to... Um, I'm, I'm going to save it for the next section, but that mm-hmm. whole humanization, the evolution of humanization as, you know, a feeling uh, for not just the human race, but for all sentient species. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts, HT? All right, so 
I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was a testament to blockbuster filmmaking. And I do agree with a lot of the points that you guys said. But for some reason, it didn't quite hit as strongly for me as it did for you two. I think it might be because I don't have a huge connection with the Planet of the Apes series mm -hmm. as much as, like, as you guys do. Um, but I also think that I thought it was interesting that people see intellectual blockbusters, intellectual genre films, as elevated because of how well they pay homage to genre mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and to other films. And I think that like it can be done well. So, like, for example, Captain America: Winter Soldier, Logan. I really like those films and how they paid homage to their separate genres. But for this one, I don't know. It, it I think it did well, but for some reason, it didn't quite like strike a chord with me. Do you I think don't really it, they, were, they were trying to? It was too on the nose of references? It was kind of on the nose. So some of, there are some very strong religious allegories that I was like, okay. It <laughs> I mean, like, there were some point, parts where I was like, I rolled my eyes. I was like, okay, they're doing this. Like the parts where there was like allegories for slavery, for example. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, mm, okay, so this is a little bit too heavy-handed. But it didn't take me out of the movie. For um, But I don't know. I mean, I liked it. There were just moments that didn't quite jibe with me, but I think it was wonderfully performed. I especially love what Mike was saying about how it almost was like a silent film with the uh, performances that were focused on the eyes. And definitely, like, the technology, if it hadn't progressed so far as it has, that wouldn't have been able, they wouldn't have been able to do that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. And right. I really appreciate, like, internal performances and internal movies, um, whereas this one I felt was very biblical and very sweeping. Mm -hmm. And those are movies I think that I don't connect with personally as much. I like I like the fact that it was biblical and sweeping, but mm -hmm. it always went back to Caesar, right? And I, it always went back to his character and his his story. Mm -hmm. right. I never for a second like dislike well, like ever disconnected with Caesar. Yeah. Caesar was definitely like a really good root for this film, and I always believed Andy Serkis's performance in it. And oh I was yeah, just right. Like, oh. And I I think I think a lot of blockbusters sometimes the movie can get away from themselves mm -hmm. if you don't have strong characters. Right. And the action can be way too overwhelming, and you're not sure what's happening. But you're always sure. You're always sure what's happening with Caesar and his and the apes. Like there's always there's always a focal point, and I, I right. think that that helps the, these giant action scenes mm -hmm. in this movie. Like this is definitely the biggest apes movie. Right. And the, especially in the third act, like the, a lot of things are happening. And, like, but there's it's, a literal war that breaks yeah, out. Like, but it's very <laughs> it's, even though it's kind of misnamed. It's, it's not really yeah, a war film. Yeah, it, Spoilers. <laughs> it, I mean, it essentially, it's just battle for the planet of the apes yeah. and title. Um, because. But it's not like they go on sieges, <laughs> <laughs> trench warfare. Um, but you know, it's definitely um, it definitely is focused on Caesar and his story, and that that makes the action more powerful, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Going off of what your point about how it focuses on Caesar, that's why I feel like it feels like. I think the proper word is synthesis of all the different homages to mm -hmm. various genres. Because I could totally see why people could say, okay, I've read some negative reviews where it's like, okay, they're just imitating, you know, these I wouldn't better say they're films. Just, yeah, I wouldn't say they're just imitating. I just don't... But yeah. in, terms of Caesar's, right. in terms of Caesar's character, those genres are very relevant. Mm -hmm. So when they're acting as a Western and you have, you know these epic vista shots juxtaposed with, you know, the lone character riding, mm -hmm. that's a constant theme of Westerns that parallels with Caesar's, mm -hmm. especially as he's wrestling with his instincts. Or, you know, when he's being ape Moses. I mean, okay, yeah, that was a bit too much for me, I will admit that. But, I mean, it makes sense. It. it makes sense for <laughs> it a... It beautiful. It makes sense for a sentient species that's on... 
a the brink of like yeah a journey mm-hmm. of like developing their own mythos, their own spiritual icons. Everyone needs a Washington. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I could. Uh, that's how I rationalize it. Um, but there are other elements I want to discuss, but that's spoilers. So. Yeah. Um, well, I do want to mention before we wrap up our Apes review, our War for the Planet of the Ace review, Steve Zahn. He <sighs> oh, was great. Excellent. So and sweet. added a great element of levity I went to the in, entire film. I went in with the same feeling I had about Olaf for Frozen before mm-hmm. I saw the movie Frozen. I was right. like, oh, he's going to ruin it. He's going to take Is it going to be inappropriate? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be way too comical. It's going to just be like way too much. But... He definitely brings a lot of com- a lot of humor to the movie. That's like it's a very dramatic movie, and mm-hmm. he really he lightens the mood. But he doesn't. He never took me out of it. Right. But it, because I did know it was Steve Zahn, I was like, "Oh, there's Steve Zahn." <laughs> That's what I was like the entire time. But too. like, but at the same, and you could hear it in his voice. Like, yeah. But it, um, it was just a very fascinating like move to have Steve Zahn, who hasn't really been in a. A big budget movie for a right. while. Right. He's always that guy in films. Oh yeah, he's like the indie character actor. Yeah, uh, he's the he's the best friend to like the in Sahara. He's best. <laughs> yeah. oh, he's, he's Matthew McConaughey's oh, best God, friend. He was in Sahara. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> it was great. I love Steve Zahn. <laughs> right. But he has like genuine pathos, like especially when you get that first introduction, mm-hmm. and it's very important because. Throughout the course of the films, Caesar is the only intelligent ape that could speak eloquently. The rest of his tribe, they are, they're all dependent on sign language. If they can speak, it's maybe a few words at a time. Mm-hmm. This is an, okay, don't want to mention spoilers, but this is an ape that was on his own that somehow mastered the English language, mm-hmm. like, to the point that he rivals Caesar. Mm-hmm. I wonder what that has to say about, you know, the different degrees of humanization in other ape tribes or communities that may or may not exist. I'm always fascinated universe. by the idea of like a worldwide planet of the apes because all it's these very mo- rich. all these movies have really just been even the older movies have all, always been focused on North America. And even like physically, he looks qualitatively different. Like he has kind of less hair. Mm-hmm. He's got almost more human-like features, even more so than Caesar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So well, he wasn't. I don't think he, he. His age is hard to tell. Yeah. But I think he was born before the the simian virus came out. Right. But he was definitely affected by it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So I think that's enough of a review of War for the Planet of the Apes. I think, I think I, so too. I think yeah. we've all given our you know thoughts. our thoughts and very much recommend it. So yeah. definitely go out and see it. And if you haven't seen the first two, definitely see those first before you see this movie. It's like the story is very dependent on on the the character arcs. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely one of the best movies of the year. Um, and if not, like, yeah. Shout, shout out to them for doing a great trilogy. Yes, agreed. And they're apes, not monkeys. Just FYI. Oh yeah. All right, all right, Mike. I feel like that was a subtweet towards me. It actually was a subtweet towards Ted Cruz because he talked about Planet. Did Earth. he? Yeah, he was like, it was talking about PETA. It was some tweet he tweeted against PETA, um, and he was like, "Well, this makes this is relevant uh, for monkeys." You know, Planet of the Apes is coming out this week, and I was like, "Ted, this is why you can't pass healthcare." Um, all right, but moving on. Let's move on. Moving to, on to the next part. Um, we, let's ca- talk about the old films. The- um, so this is going to be a completely educational part for me because I have not seen any of them. I know the beats of the first film, um, but you guys were talking a little bit about this before we started the episode. So 
actually, I want to start you off, start it off with Mike. Sure. <laughs> um, so Mike was talking to me when we were watching War for the Planet of the Apes about how the Planet of the Apes series was always about the racial allegories. Because I remember being a little bit put off when I saw it in, in War, and I was like, wow, that's really on the nose. Um, has it always been, like, as much of an allegory for, like, race and um, African Americans and everything like that? And sure. he said yes. Sure, yes, especially in the last two films. Mm-hmm. I would say... Of the, of the original series. Of the original series. Mm-hmm. So the original series comprises of... It's five films. Yep. So the first film, I think its commentary wasn't so much on race as it was about the idea of evolution and, you know, the gradual humanization and dehumanization by con- contrasting these two different species. But you have to take into consideration that it was released in, what, 1968 Mm -hmm. by a white filmmaker. So obviously, you know, the audience engagement at the time, it's going to reflect contemporary anxieties. So, you know, when white mainstream middle class audiences see a film of, you know, these species of sentient apes taking over society, especially if you go further into the 70s, where... We see that it's born out of a slave narrative, that they were once the oppressed, but now they're the oppressors. And you see images of apes riding in the streets, um, those historical parallels mm-hmm. to, you know... They definitely based... The, con- they took a lot of, of inspiration from the Watts riots yeah, and for Conquest of the Planet definitely. Apes, which is the fourth movie. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So it's always been racially coded, but... I don't think even at the time that it was released that was supposed it was meant to, you know, denigrate African Americans or people of color or anyone who's ever been oppressed. If anything, it's supposed to be an allegory for that revolutionary spirit, but also as a cautionary tale that that revolutionary spirit, like if it's not tamed, if it doesn't, you know, pursue humanity as that end goal of peace collective understanding that the revolutionaries will eventually be just as oppressive as the initial oppressors Mm. so granted the choice of apes dancing around you know that kind of racial subtext it's probably not the best optics Mm -hmm. but i think overall that thematic message of preserving dignity of finding humanity as a sentient species of just collective kinship of you know living in peace versus you know what Woody Harrelson's character is engaging in or exploiting other people for you know labor for servitude or whatnot Mm -hmm. I mean that for me was like the overriding message but yeah it has danced around some racial subtext like in the past even now like I remember reading an article that Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was a commentary on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Interesting. I I see that, but I don't... I have to read that. Yeah, like, the filmmakers intentionally don't, like, seek out, okay, what are, like, the current crises that are going around the world? Right. Because, like, as I mentioned earlier, this is about, you know, ubiquitous, universal human traits that still permeate all these conflicts that happen throughout history. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's rather... I mean, especially with the most recent film, it's an incredibly dark tale, but it's a very hopeful message. Mm-hmm. Kind of right. Logan. Yeah. Kind of Logan. So let, let's go through the original plan of the Apes films. Uh, what are the titles for them? So, okay, so we got the 1968 film, which came out, was based on a book called, a French book called 
I won't even know the <laughs> it's original, punch. but the Planet of the Apes was the original title. That's the the original title of the '68 movie. They did a sequel called Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which takes place literally beneath, beneath the planet the <laughs> in a subway station, um, a radiated subway station in New York. Um, and then uh, the third movie is called Escape from the Planet of the Apes, okay. which in which Cornelius and Zira, the two main ape mo- characters. Uh, from these series go back in time and to escape from escape from the destruction of the Planet of the Apes um, from the which, second film from the second film and they go back in time to the 70s to the present day yeah and then they have a child named Caesar, Caesar. and that that child grows up in conquest of the Planet of the Apes in which he leads an ape revolt um, after the uh, apes have been enslaved uh, because they realize dogs and cats for some reason, there's there was like there was a plague. A, there was a virus or plague killed all the dog and cats. Uh-huh. They took apes and made them pets, and then they realized that they could be, they could learn things pretty quickly. So they started basically, they turned them into slaves. And then Caesar, Caesar did not grow up a slave. He grew up in a circus, and he and he saw this this, this slavery happening, and he was not having it. Mm-hmm. So he basically let he he basically infiltrated the compound right. and led a revolt. Um, similar to how he did it in Rise. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Rise is basically almost like a remake of Conquest, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And, uh, and then Battle for the Planet of the Apes takes place about 20 years later, after the revolt, in which there has been a, a nuclear apocalypse, and civilization is building up, and right now the humans and apes are in a tentative peace. They're kind of like in a detente. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're living together, but but it's clear that the apes are in charge. Right. But the but the and the humans second class citizens second class citizens they're not they're not slaves they're not anything. slaves or they're not labor they're not what they were in the '68 films yet they're not they can still speak they're they're not mute. Um, it's like segregation, pretty yeah. Much. Mm-hmm. And so and there, there's kind of like a Koba character from Dawn of the Planet of the Apes mm-hmm. in battle. Aldo, Aldo, right? he's a general. He does not like humans. He clearly wants to be in charge mm-hmm. and basically um uh and then there's these uh irradiated humans who uh remember caesar and remember the re- revolution and are, don't like them and the, so basically they come to destroy the apes once and for all and uh and then that leads to a battle and it leads to kind of an ambiguous ending on where things go because there's time travel involved and the future the past is is changed because or it might have been, it may not be, because we don't know if it was always the plan for Cornelius and Zero to go back in time, give birth to Caesar, who then leads the rise. Because their history of the apes is different than the history we see in the movies. Because they pretty much crafted a new mythic figure, so maybe like the teachings of Caesar as a mythic figure, if you're taking the optimistic outlook, is that he tempers ape society so that when Charlton Heston does eventually land on Earth, maybe the humans and apes finally learn to coexist. Because he leaves Earth before the events of these movies mm. so and they reference him in in escape from the planet of the apes okay. um and they're like taylor he went back in time he went in into space they didn't know he went back and he went forward in time okay. um and obviously that was a big that's a big plot point of if in fact the spoiler of the 20th century besides darth vader is that the planet of the apes is actually earth right. yeah um that's not a spoiler <laughs> <laughs> it's a 50 year old film don't get right. mad at me <laughs> don't at me um <laughs> And so basically, like, and through conquest of the Planet of the Apes and battle for that, that's where the racial racial overtones are probably at its 
most at the, at its forefront mm-hmm. yeah. um, because there's even a moment where Caesar is leading the revolution and a black man who's kind of in charge of uh, some things in this like almost like fascistic society that they're yeah. that's happening he says and he and he's sympathetic towards Caesar but he's trying to tell Caesar you shouldn't like don't do this there's another way mm-hmm. and basically Caesar says you he literally says like the line you know more than anyone else the like the, the plight. plight of the children oh. of slaves yeah interesting and so and then and then the guy lets him go and lets Caesar and he kind of tries to make sure that Caesar can be Benevolent, benevolent, mm-hmm. and there's a there's two moments. There's two versions of conquest of the Planet of the Apes. We watched the, these versions before the, the podcast. We'll, we'll link a, them in the uh, blog post as well. There's a super dark ending, mm-hmm. and then there's the theatrical cut, which is more um, optimistic, optimistic, um, and peaceful. And I saw the uncut version because I was like, I want to see what the hell happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is dark. <laughs> this gets bleak. Um, basically, Caesar. Not succumbs to his darker ambitions, inhibitions, but just uh, it's it doesn't end well for the humans. He spells out humanity's doom, yeah, to uh, their face, and <laughs> you know, and but but the thing is, you're always kind of on the sides of the apes because mm-hmm. the humans have always been betrayed, as at least when they're ruling the apes in this in this um, in conquest, they're very overbearing and very like they don't care about the apes at all there's no mm-hmm. humanity towards the, the apes so it's kind of like in the new trilogy where you're on you're on caesar's side mm-hmm. and you see why he's so mad and you see why he you 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 can justify in your head why these apes would want to revolt mm-hmm. and like other than just um you know having racial commentary and the whole slavery narrative but they're so steep in that 1970s counterculture spirit because they tackle so many subjects that you could find within that kind of rebellious attitudes as um there's one scene in beneath of the planet for the planet of the apes where these young college age chimpanzees are protesting the growing militarism mm-hmm. of the guerrilla army's expansion efforts so they literally stage an anti-war protest i was like huh what does that remind me and the of the second movie came out in 1970 so in the middle of the Vietnam War. It's the, clear what they're talking the about. The mutants and beneath of the Planet of the Apes, they're this religious cult that venerate a literal atomic bomb. Yeah, they so, literally worship the bomb. Wow. So this is they like... gospels. They've turned psalms and gospels, and they've replaced the word God with bomb. So it's almost a critique of that religious fanaticism and, you know, institutional religion that and, can lead to your literal demise. And the military-industrial complex. And the military-industrial complex, <laughs> which is kind of, like, very similar in the most recent film. Um, you have this Caucasian skinhead colonel leading a group of fanatical gung-ho Rambo wannabes mm-hmm. enslaving another species, getting them to build a wall. That was the most. I was like, I, when I saw that, I was like, "This movie." Took, when did this movie come out? This, <laughs> movie, this movie, this movie made? was made between 2015 and 2017. That was a minor spoiler about a wall, but I'm not going to go any further. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and there are connections to um, the bomb in Beneath of the Planet of the Apes and the Colonel's Army. Um, the, the Alpha Omega? Yeah, that. that mm-hmm. symbol, those symbols are... The beginning and the end. <laughs> yep. Um, and there's a lot of... I mean, this movie, this franchise has always been very referential to itself, kind of like the Star Wars movies. There's lines that are said. In, oh, yeah. Um, and I like what... 
I like that these movies have a sense of continuity, even if they do meddle with it with time. Like, mm-hmm. but they, they, it's always about this inevitable outcome of the Planet of the Apes. So, why is it that I never really saw uh, the Planet of the Apes franchise or the original series as being one of these really um, big sci-fi franchises that people are invested in? They feel kind of like almost B movie. Well, they are. Sci-fi. They're franchises. not. They weren't. I mean, they were critically a lot of most of them were financially successful, but. Uh, Beneath of the Planet of the Apes and Battle for the Planet of the Apes have... They're not the best movies. Mm-hmm. Like, these movies are not the best. Yeah, like, right. their charm is they get by on camp. Mm-hmm. It's like, remember when I first came on the podcast about how the very first Godzilla film had some deep cuts into, like, an existential crisis post, you know, nuclear fallout, mm-hmm. and then he turns into a superhero. <laughs> yeah. Like, these movies... I mean, these movies have a lot of dark themes, and they manage them well. Mm-hmm. But the filmmaking, I think doesn't it it's it does isn't they're not timeless movies. right they yeah. very much like the makeup is very much man in a mask and you can tell but they do well like you i mean it's not it's not motion capture by any means yeah mm-hmm. but and and you know the the acting that charlton heston does is very one note like he doesn't go through an arc uh-huh. he's pretty much you know he he, he just reacts to situations. Yeah. He, he doesn't have any real clear agency. Yeah, and the second guy, Brent, who, who comes yeah. to follow him in Beneath of the Planet of the Apes, is pretty much, I don't think they could have gotten Charlton Heston for the entire movie, so they're like, why don't we have another guy who looks just like Car- Charlton Heston? <laughs> discount him. Charlton Di- Heston. He's, he's, he's discount Charlton Heston, and he finds the same girl that Charlton Heston was like, romantically involved with. Where did Charlton Heston go? Did he just like go back off into space? They he no, he um he fell and he like fell into the into underground oh. and they and they they the mutant humans captured him. Oh. Um and basically but for the most of the movie it's Br- this guy Brent <laughs> who looks just like him. That's He's, hilarious. And you're like, "Oh, okay, so they just couldn't get Charlton Heston the entire time." That's what confused me a lot when I first watched those films because this was I didn't get into Planet of the Apes until after I saw the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, <laughs> which, which we're 30 minutes in and we haven't talked about it, which is okay. It's okay. I think it's worth just a brief mention. That's all it is yeah. worth. It was a reboot that was not good. With Marky Mark. Mark, Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg. And also um, Tim Roth as like the evil general, and then Charlton Heston as an orangutan. What? Yeah, he came back as, he, he was like he a, was a chimp. He was he, a chimp. He, he was he the played king. the father of Tim Roth. Right, he was like the he was like the leader, he was like the old like <laughs> regent, re, um, regional like governor guy, and his his one his main line is "damn them all to hell" yeah. in the Tim Burton Which film. Which the, the Tim Burton film and Rise of the Planet of the Apes are very referential to like in that to they, that very original. They do character names and they do um, lines uh, and or like they'll like uh, reinterpret old lines um, or they'll like say them in and but I do like in Rise to go back to Rise for a moment mm-hmm. the moment where um, Tom Felton says, get your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. And then Caesar says, no. no. And it's the most powerful moment oh, in the plan in the whole movie. That was a great moment because that was like the first time he spoke. Yeah. You could hear a pin drop if you saw that in theaters. Yeah. And you could just tell that like that's a, that was a pivotal moment, but I liked that they took a, a line, a pivotal line from, which is the first time Charlton Heston speaks after getting yeah. shot in the throat, and they think he's a mute human like mm-hmm. everyone else, but when they he finally, his throat heals and he can speak, he says that line. Mm-hmm. And it's a powerful moment, but for Rise, they 
do the flip side, where it's the first time an ape speaks. Mm. So I don't, these movies have some symmetry. They kind of do what the Star Wars prequels do, but better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, back to... What were we talking about? It was about? Tim Burton's plan. Yeah. Okay. We, we, I think we, we can finish that. This is, this is Mike's actually hashtag. Oh, yeah. So, Mac as well. Mike as well, actually. Okay. <laughs> okay, this is more of a say something nice. I will say, despite the poor execution, the bland lead performance by Mark Wahlberg, the really confusing, bizarre ending that makes no sense. Nope. <laughs> no sense at all. I would say two things nice. The first thing, great makeup effects. Mm-hmm. Mr. Rick Baker, incredibly talented, and I guess it kind of really does maintain the campy texture of the original films. Yeah, you can tell they're masks, but they're more evolved masks. Yeah, so I was like, that's what I would like to see in a modern Planet of the Apes. Like, if they did just prosthetics, you know, when they've reached that point of evolution, it's like, that's great makeup work. Granted, it's kind of hard to... Listen to Helena Bonham Carter and Tim Roth speak. Helena Bonham Carter's in this movie. Yeah, she too. plays the main uh, female ape. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and, there, and love interest of Marky Mark. Th- yeah, there's a romantic subplot. Does Marky Mark want to get with the human blonde or the female chimpanzee played by Helena Bonham it's Carter? A love <laughs> it's a really weird. Michael Dunk Michael Clark Duncan is the big religious gorilla, and I thought he looked cool. But the best performance is Tim Roth, because he goes wild in this He's role. General Fade. Yeah. You don't, if you see any of Tim Roth's films, and then you see this film, this is nothing like Tim Roth. Yeah. I honestly <sighs> didn't believe it was Tim Roth until It's I saw like, it. I think Tim Burton, like, told Tim Roth to, like, okay, you're going to snort some cocaine, and then you're going to pop some Adderall, and then just... Act just like, go ape. Just go, just go ape. ape. Just like act like a ape. I think like some of the B roll they had to stop him from literally flinging poo at people because Tim Roth goes mad in this film. Yeah. He basically is the most wild character you'll ever see. Oh, and wow. he's like a general. He's and like he doesn't the, even play a Tim Roth character. No. He doesn't play cool or sophisticated. He's completely opposite. Of that. He's basically like he's like a weird combination of Scar from the Lion King and like an ape. <laughs> yeah, he does his best Nicolas Cage is what he does um, but yeah but that's Mike the, says something nice and that's, that's all we should really talk about the Burton, the yeah. Burton apes agreed um, but back so like the, the original movies have their I think oh back to your point of like why have, why aren't they more well regarded, well regarded? Yeah. I think that's because they just weren't at the best I think they're getting a, a to use a term that's overused in 2017, a relitigation mm. of these movies. Like, people, I think, because the new movies are coming out, we're talking about them more. Mm-hmm. And that kind of happens with each franchise. We go back and, like, why the the Brendan Fraser Mummy movies were better than they okay. are now. Those are but, great. No, they are great. They are great. <laughs> no, and, the worst is why Batman and Robin by Joel Schumacher is actually a good film. And at the end of the day, not. I'm like, no, no, it's not. It's but, not. <laughs> and, but, like, the... but. Um, I think now that these modern movies are coming out, we're talking about the older movies more, and we're talking. And you know, a lot of people, the, like the general assessment is the first movie was good, and the other one, and the other four were not. And mm-hmm. that's not the case. I think that the fourth movie is probably one of the, probably the second best movie after um, the uh, original Planet mm-hmm. of the Apes because the, the original Planet of the Apes has such novelty to it, it has that Statue of Liberty moment. It's just it recon- that which it's almost after. There's no other explanation. He, dev- he, he, he basically just says, oh my god, I've, I never left Earth. Mm-hmm. Damn you all to hell. 
and then um, and then it ends. And oh. it's on the shot of the Statue of Liberty, and that shot of the Statue of Liberty on this like desolate beach, you know, clearly it was thrown by a bomb into like, mm-hmm. you know, and you can that from that moment it recontextualizes the entire film. Mm-hmm. It, they never do an explainer where they go, and that's how the human world turned into the ape world <laughs> after a nuclear explosion <laughs> exploded the entire world, yeah. and the apes ev- evolved and humans devolved. Like they never do that; they just end it. Mm-hmm. And that's and like I remember there's a scene in Mad Men where Don Draper takes his kid to go see the movie mm-hmm. because it takes place in, 60, in, <laughs> in 68 mm-hmm. and it's like um, oh it was the the day the day after Martin Luther King was shot and uh, basically uh, they go to the movie theater because Don Draper likes to escape into media mm-hmm. and that's what he does and so he's taking his kid to do it and the the two of them are just sitting there they it, it uh the, the mad men camera look is like pointing at the screen in mm-hmm. the movie theater of the final shot of man of the apes goes to credits it cuts to don draper and his kid watching the movie and they're just stunned mm-hmm. and you can tell that that was a moment where ever that was it's the darth vader moment right reveal mm-hmm. before that the darth vader moment reveal happened mm-hmm. in cinema history like that was it's one of the biggest plot twists of cinema history mm-hmm. that this alien planet they thought they were on was not an alien planet mm-hmm. at all yeah and I think that really speaks to why it never really has a huge pop culture imprint other than oh my god the apes took over because it's incredibly bleak incredibly dark it's a t- it's actually a, a, an original invention of Rod Serling who wrote a draft of the script um, who did for the Twilight Zone? Right? For the twi- well, no, he, he was going to do a Twilight Zone episode. Then he was like, "This could be a full feature." That makes sense. Why it feels very Twilight Zone? Exactly, because oh. it was written by Rod Serling. Well, a draft of it, and then it was rewritten. But that uh, that ending of that twist ending was kept in. But that oh. that's a Rod. That wasn't in the original novel. The original mm-hmm. novel, it was a, a an actual alien planet. Oh. And even with the current films, I mean. From people who love it, it's like, I'm ready to root against humanity. And, you know, that's not exactly the most digestible thing for, you know, the general audience mm-hmm. versus, oh my god, look at our hot superhero, Chris right. Evans' biceps, <laughs> versus Caesar is doing right as a revolutionary for his people. Yeah, but that means we kind of go extinct. Mm-hmm. I, I like well, happy this, movies. this climate, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's let, let the apes rule for a little bit. I think yeah. we're... So, like, it's hard to digest. Right. But, like, once you process it and really do a critical deep dive as to, you know, the subtext behind these films and, like, how it's a very ubiquitous trait that the apes are going through, I mean, it's very enriching. Mm -hmm. One thing I thought was interesting about the new uh, rebooted series was that they did try to give credence to both humanity and to the apes. Like, Mm -hmm. at the beginning, it was much more balanced. And as it went on, even in in Dawn of the Planet Apes, it was very balanced as well. And I really liked that, that it was very complex tellings and portrayals of both the human human side and the ape side and how there was flaws and and, um, dissenters on both sides. Whereas in this one, it kind of goes more, it feels more in line with the original films almost. Yeah, where where the the humans are a little bit more Mm -hmm. one-note and more evil. Um, And there's, there's not even really, like, a... I was expecting in War for the Planet of the Apes to have, like, a soldier in the army who was, like, uh, sympathetic towards the apes, right. but there really wasn't. We thought yeah. that, uh, what's his name, Preacher? Preacher the, I thought he was going to be, too. Guy. Yeah. I thought he was going to be sympathetic towards the apes. I thought there was going to be some then, sort of Eureka moment, And yeah. then, twist, the guy who helps Caesar is... Yeah. Yeah. 
Do we want to comment on that? Nope. Is that a spoiler? Yeah. Let's, let's not spoil it. That is okay. a spoiler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah there's, <laughs> we're not going to spoil this movie because I think it's it's worth it's worth it's worth seeing play out in a movie yes. theater, especially in a movie theater. If you can get get to see this movie in a movie theater, I would recommend it. Um, so I don't think we can talk much about the future of this series without spoiling it. So uh, we'll just say that Matt Reeves does want to come back for another film, and he says he has ideas for it, although now he will be tied down by the Batman films. Yep. Mm-hmm. Just those mm-hmm. things. So, Which I'm excited for because if there's one thing Matt Reeves does well, it's family. That's true, and actually. I think family. that the Bat family is worthy um, topic. You know how I feel about the Bat family. Yeah. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> and so, you know, Bruce Wayne is a bit of a, a, bit, bit of a family guy, a bit of a patriarch. Mm-hmm. He's a family guy because he's a tortured soul, so his family is what keeps him going. Just like Caesar. Just like Caesar. All right. Um, I, I guess a good that's ending. a good way to, to wrap up our Planet of the Apes discussion. Um, They're let's... apes, not monkeys. All right, Mike. <laughs> Let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. I really, 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 really like you. All right, Mike, since you're our guest today, friend of the pod, why don't you start us off? Oh, shoot, I forgot what I really, really like. Um, I'll go first. Okay. Right. Lily, why don't you go first? I've been rewatching 30 Rock. Oh. Yeah. Um, basically... So I was trying to, I went to New York recently with my girlfriend, and it was an amazing vacation, and that is also pretty much my really like, but if we're going to go pop culture, my really like is 30 Rock, because I was looking for things to watch on the train ride up and down, because Netflix can do downloads now, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to watch a couple episodes of The Office, the original, um, not the original, but the, the one from NBC. And I watched those, and I was like, I'm gonna, watch, I'm gonna rewatch a couple more NBC comedies. And I was like, I haven't done a rewatch of Thirty Rock in forever. And so I was like, I'm gonna start from the beginning. And what I really found interesting about watching Thirty Rock eleven years after the premiere is that these these this show is incredibly fossilized in its comedy. Mm-hmm. And not to say that's a bad thing. It's not. Right. It's very of its time. It's of its time. Its jokes are incredibly re- referential to what's happening in pop culture and politics. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of Bush-era jokes, a lot of comedy that only makes sense if you're watching, like, reality shows at the time. You know, they reference Lost a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's a lot of... And so I'm wondering, like, what happens, like, when my kids here go back and watch... 30 Rock, like, 20 years later, like, we do a Seinfeld or something, and be like, will they get the jokes? Mm-hmm. Because Unless they've, like, watched the, uh, the VH1 I Love the 2000s. <laughs> they're not... I feel like the, a lot of these jokes are going to go over their heads. So I, it's really fascinating to watch 10 years later. I wonder if that's why I haven't been able to finish 30 Rock. Not because I dislike it. I just watched the first, I think, three seasons, and I was like, this is a good show, but then I got, just kind of fell off and didn't really... When, when did you start watching them? It was only, like, Two years ago. Okay, so like but I think that's so, why. Yeah, yeah, so like the jokes are already dated. They are, and yeah. so and like by the time you get to, I think the the show ended in twenty thirteen, like early twenty thirteen. So like mm-hmm. even now, those jokes are four years old. Mm-hmm. So, I it, I still love it. The show is really funny and it's right. great, but it's really like it's dated, but not in a bad way. Just yeah. like you can tell it's a that nice it, it's a retrospect. And like I feel on. like Kimmy Schmidt's gonna do the same thing because it's the same people. Tina, yeah. Tina Fey. Like those jokes are very very self-refer... Not self, but very referential to comedy. Yeah. In, right. Or pop culture at the, at the present moment. Unless it's like a Beyonce joke, because let's be honest, those are... Oh, timeless. yeah. And they made, like, <laughs> Barack Obama jokes in 2006. So I was like, this is crazy. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, I remember there was a, a Beyonce joke in an old episode of Static Shock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's still relevant. Yeah. <laughs> She's timeless. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I got my, uh, what I really, really like. Go for it. So I've been reading this book because it was the 4th of July week, uh, week last week, but I read this book, The Killer Angels, about the Battle of Gettysburg because a few friends and I, we toured the, Gatti- the Gettysburg battlefield a while back because we're kind of like big history geeks. I've done that. Yeah, but so there's a movie called Gettysburg, which is based off this book that stars Martin Sheen as Robert E. Lee for some reason. Yeah. (laughs) But it also has Jeff Daniels as uh, Colonel Chamberlain, Hmm. who's one of the famed heroes. But the book, which was the inspiration for the movie, it's a fantastic read. It gets into the perspectives of all the different commanders of both the Union and the Confederacy on the days of the battle, and it really does a great job of painting individual characterizations. We have uh, Robert E. Lee as, you know, problematic as his history is i'm not going to go into details because i have a lot to say on that matter but it does portray him as you know a war-weary old man who still has to commit to battle general longstreet as a guy who's very skeptical and dubious of lee's directions um general chamberlain who is a college professor who waxes poetic about how can they claim to fight for freedom when their freedom is to enslave another race so it's a very nuanced well-detailed book and it's just a an exceptional read, and it felt made me feel really nostalgic about visiting different parts of the battlefield that I had saw because it just just does a great job of painting the landscape, you know, what the men were going through, and it has like hits on those like important themes, and it does not do you know racial erasure. Like, like erasure. Sorry, I can't pronounce things. I'm Asian, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's a it's a fantastic read. I read it in like maybe. Two days. It's just that quick. So highly recommend it if you're into historical fiction. I should read more historical fiction. I'm trying to get away from the fantasy that I'm reading. But speaking of fantasy, <laughs> the Wrinkle in Time trailer was released yesterday during D23, and my God, it looks stunning. And it really brought back to me one of my favorite childhood books, which is Madeline Langle's Wrinkle in Time series. It's actually a series of four books, I think. I did not know that. It is. I have. Wait, I have there the, are sequels. There are yeah. sequels. I have the I first three. I actually, I I actually never read the fourth one, but it's the same characters. They just like throughout the ages. I think they they skip like two or three years every time that there's a new book, and they're not really like connected. Like there's a huge overarching right. story. It's just like their little adventures every time. They're really good. It's um, it's really surreal and deals with time travel as well as just like fantasy elements and you know broad sweeping stories of evil good and evil it's funny because i tried reading that book a long time ago Mm -hmm. i'm not sure if i was too young to read it or just didn't understand it Mm -hmm. a lot but like i tried to read it and it was like i think it was one of the books that we had to read for summer Mm -hmm. like summer like it was a summer reading it was on the list of books we could read and i tried it and i was just like i can't get into it and i'll and i think it was because i just wasn't a reader or like the only book i books i had really read were like Captain Underpants books. <laughs> I did or like, too. <laughs> I like, like there weren't. It was I, the 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 biggest book I had read as as a child was the Harry Potter series. Right. So like, yeah, I think it was a little bit more dense. Yeah. Than I was than I was anticipating. It's, it's not dense, but it's kind of over well, your head. It's very as a kid yeah, I thought it was dense. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely very lofty in terms of like the concepts, like abstract concepts. I think. Yeah. Um, but I think if you read it, a lot of the con- concepts will be familiar with you to you now because a lot of sci-fi movies like Interstellar or um, 
uh, Arrival deal with similar concepts. Oh, so the fifth dimension? Yeah. Actually, <laughs> the power of love? Yeah. Yep, basically. That's, that's basically why I, I can see when I was rereading the book. I, was, I reread it after I um, saw the trailer. I was like, I have to reread this book. It's one of my favorites. Did favorite. you already finish it? I'm like halfway through. Oh, okay. It's like it's a really short book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading it, and I was like, wow, I can tell why I love the things I love now because it's all sort of ingrained in these books, in this book that I used to love as a kid. I Interesting. Think it was one of my first chapter books, I think, because I have the 97 edition, so I was about five years old. Is that old. the one with the really weird cover? Yeah. And like the, like the centaur? Yeah. Right. Who had like wings? Yep. That, that was okay. one of the characters. That's, that was, okay, so that cover, I was like, this is a very interesting book. What is this? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I lapped it up when I was a kid, and mm-hmm. definitely it it really showed like why I, I love the things I love now. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited about the new movie. Uh, there was actually a made-for-TV movie that I watched way back when as well. Wait, really? Uh, yeah. Hey, I never saw it, but Fun I remember facts. I can't remember. I gotta look that up. It was a while ago. I think there was one or two rec- recognizable actresses. It's pretty good. I remember mm-hmm. liking it quite a bit. Um, but we should talk about who's making this movie. Yes. Ava DuVernay! Oh, and with the, with the stellar cast as well. Oprah... Reese Witherspoon, Mindy Kaling, or Kaling? Kaling. Mindy Kaling. Kaling. Um, Chris Pine. Bearded Chris Pine. Bearded Chris Pine. <laughs> and um, uh, Gugu Mbathira, who I love. I just, I love everyone about this cast. I love Ava DuVernay. I love the, just, the style and the surreal, just, design of this film already. I've only seen the short trailer. I think it's only does a it, teaser, does really. It, yeah, it was, does, does, does the trailer... Is it like does it do justice to the aesthetic of the book that it made? I think it actually is much is more extravagant than I imagined in the book because mm-hmm. in the book it's all kind of concepts and doesn't really go into much detail about what is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so visually, the movie so look is very much it's much more lush than I imagined it actually being. And that does, but that doesn't take away from what. No, that's cool. So I'm I'm really excited for It doesn't the film. look too Hollywoodized or Disneyfied. No. I mean it looks it's a lot Disney. it looks very glossy, but mm-hmm. in What a do big you way. feel about the Hunger Games comparisons on the hair designs? Another friend of the pod made that comparison on Twitter. Did who said that? Mr. Axelrod. Josh! No, Josh. <laughs> Hi Josh. Don't talk about things that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. It's a fantasy series. Yeah. Right. You know, right. Hunger Games was kind of um, more embodying the sort of squacky designs of, of like Lady Gaga and everything like that, but that also pulls from sort of. Plus, Hunger Games well. stole their design from Mugatu from uh, Zoolander. Zoolander. Yeah. So <laughs> this definitely is in line with the high fantasy sci-fi vibe of the books. Cool. So I'm I'm really I'm all aboard. Oh, I do have. Speaking of sci-fi, though, I'm gonna do my second really like. A second really like HT. This is so unlike. I know. You know what? It was very important because this news broke right before we started recording this It actually podcast. is very breaking news, so ex- exclusive here on the pod. Exactly. <laughs> uh, doctor Who recently cast their new doctor. Oh, wait. I need to look up her name. <laughs> they cast the new doctor, uh, and it is... Drumbeat. A female doctor! Woo! You're going to say her name. <laughs> and her name is... We're, rec- we're looking it up. <laughs> <laughs> Jodie Whittaker. She's an actress from Broadchurch, who David Tennant, which David Tennant also starred in. Yes. But this is revolutionary because this is the first female doctor in all of Doctor Who's 50-year history. And it's 
been a long time coming because Doctor Who, the character, the Doctor, is traditionally a shape-shifting, he can go between what? genres. Yeah, like when he regenerates, he can become anybody. Yeah, and he's a time-traveling, you know, time lord. So it's sci-fi. You can do whatever you want. I don't know why they're holding out this long and having only male, white, old Guys. Well, I think you just answered your question. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Stephen Moffat will no longer be a showrunner. I know. So Stephen Moffat did his first and last great thing for the show. Well, not his first last, first great thing. He was great in the beginning. Yeah. When he was when he just, doing just epi- a writer. Just doing episodes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, he did. He finally bestowed a female doctor on the show, and he's leaving, so we won't have to deal with any more of his <sighs> to make track sexist writing. What's interesting is that he did that first with the master. Right. And the master was female in the Peter Capaldi movie. I guess you could see him, like, testing it out. Yeah. And testing out I think out that's what response. he was wanting to do. What mm-hmm. he, and I think the master, as as a woman, had a good, had great uh, reception. Yeah, Missy was really great. She was a great character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think that was kind of like, because, like, if they did it wrong, you know, first or something, it would have been the end of it. Yeah. Which but is a I guess bummer. It, I guess to give him some credit, it... It's good to be cautious because this is such a beloved um, thing franchise. Yeah. Like, yeah, with in Britain, it's yeah. one of like their staple childhood shows. My roommate. Yes, exactly, <laughs> Charles. Um, Hi, Charles. So I guess it makes sense that he wants to uh, tread carefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, he's leaving. So yeah. So he won't Thank have to that. deal with any more of his one-note female characters. Don't worry, that'll be safe for Dracula. Oh yeah, he's doing oh, Dracula. Okay, well he's, he's doing like a Dracula thing. Like, okay. he just reboots things. Yeah, <laughs> into sexy white, young white guys. All right. Um, <laughs> to <decide>. <laughs> on, that <note. laughs> on that note, I think that's a great way to wrap up our episode. If you want to chime in about the Planet of the Apes series, Thirty Rock, Gettysburg, and about Wrinkle in Time and the Doctor Who. Please let us know, and where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter, at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're on SoundCloud, where you can listen to us there. We're also on iTunes and Google Play, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. So please do. And where can they find you guys? So you can find me, at htranbui, on Twitter. Where can they find you, Mike? They can find me, at msongo91, on Twitter. Don't at me. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. Please at me. (laughs) All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye.